Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back. We're so excited to be here with you again. We've had a little break and we're feeling refreshed. Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) We take a break for the holidays, but the holidays are exhausting. (laughs) They are, but it's so nice to spend time with family and friends. It really is. And speaking of spending time with friends, we're so happy to be back with you guys. We missed you. Did you miss us? Of course they did. (laughs) But we are so happy to be starting a whole nother year with Buried Motives, and we hope to be able to bring you a lot of exciting content this year. We are excited for what is in store this year. We have some good things up our sleeves and some announcements to come later on. But for right now, I'm excited to hear Melissa's case she's brought us. That's because she knows we're traveling outside of North America, and she's going to get to laugh at all of my mispronunciations. I actually am. That's true. (laughs) It's always an enjoyment when we get to hear the other one struggle with names. It's always good to laugh at each other and at ourselves. It's true. Okay. Do you remember our Nancy Brophy case? Yes. The writer who wrote about her murder. Yes. Who wrote about ways to get away with murder and then tried to make her writings a reality by killing her husband. Yes. Today's case has a very similar theme. Really? No Mm -hmm. wonder you were attracted to it. (laughs) You're like, this is familiar. Yeah. Not because Melissa did it, because she already covered a case like it. So, Christy, have you ever wondered where authors get their ideas from? Yeah, my guess would be rather they have a really amazing imagination or from life experiences. Don't they say that the best writers write what they know? And that was definitely the case with today's dirtbag. His motive was to create a perfect murder to cover up his jealous rage and then use it to sell his novel. Whoa. He believed himself to be of superior intelligence And he would not only be able to get away with murder, but that he could become rich selling a novel with elements of the crime in it. And if anyone became wise to his story being more than fiction, he could always just argue that only a fool would write and publish about his crimes. (laughs) And he's right. You do have to be a fool to write about your crimes. Well, shockingly, this dirtbag almost gets away with it. I wonder what they think when they're writing that. I wonder if they get another sense of like a cheap thrill off of knowing people are going to be reading what he's actually done without them knowing. Oh, I'm sure that was a large part of it. Yeah. So in a little out of the way fishing spot in the Odair River in the southwest corner of Poland, three fishermen caught more than they bargained for during a peaceful fishing trip on December 10th, 2000. Oh, no. What they first thought was a log that would be hazardous to their casting turned out to be something so much more sinister. After poking at this object, they soon realized that the mass floating in the water was the tortured and bloated body of an adult male. Oh, that is so terrible. I can't even imagine. Like, you hear of all these bodies being discovered, you know, by going fishing or you're going for a run and people just find these bodies. Like, who are these poor people who are finding these bodies, let alone the poor bodies that they're finding? So true. It would be so disturbing. Yeah. Well, when police arrived to remove the body, they found that the man had been tied in a very peculiar fashion, with his hands and feet bound in an intricate knot that was also connected to a noose around his neck. Ooh. Yeah. Making all of his limbs pull back in a backwards kind of cradle-like position. So almost like a hog tie, like a reverse hog tie. Mm Mm-hmm. The way that the knots were tied made the noose tighten every time that the man moved his limbs. (gasps) That's sadistic. Yeah. So anytime that he struggled to get free, it choked him even more. That sounds like something out of a horror movie. And even the time that he had spent in the water could not erase the full story that this man had died a brutal death. The man they found was only wearing a shirt and underwear and his body showed signs of torture. Tool marks marred his face, and a series of bruises and knife wounds indicated that he had been beaten over an extended period of time. Hmm. On autopsy, water was found in the man's lungs and confirmed that he had been dumped into the river, bound and alive. (gasps) Likely, as he thrashed around in the frigid water, the noose would have tightened around his neck even tighter. How terrifying. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So they also found that there was only very small amounts of food and water left in his stomach, indicating that he had starved for at least three days prior to being thrown in the water to be drowned. Oh my goodness. So he wouldn't even have much energy to try and save himself because your instinct would be to try to thrash around, try to get out. You'd want to try and save yourself from drowning. And then every time you do that for that noose to get tighter, that is sinister. It's a little overkill. Yeah. They wanted this person to be tortured right up until the very end. Yeah. I think that that was their intention was to inflict as much pain as they could till his last dying breath. Oh, it had to be. The man was guessed to be in his 30s and was tall, over six feet, and weighed over 200 pounds. He was well built, and so he wasn't a man that would have been overpowered very easily. The police compared their victim with missing person reports and came across Daria Shanoszewski, a 35-year-old with long brown hair and blue eyes that had been reported missing by his wife four weeks prior to the body being discovered. On November 13, 2000, Dariush was last seen leaving his office of a small advertising firm that he owned in Warsaw, a city about 100 kilometers or 60 miles from the river where he was found. Around 4 p.m., Dariush had left his work to presumably meet with a potential client. The client had called the office that morning around 9.30, and after speaking to Dariush's mother, who was the accounting clerk, arranged to speak with Dariush about printing rates for large posters and billboards. The caller, who had sounded official and sophisticated, had insisted on speaking to Dariush directly to arrange a time to meet later in the day to discuss business. The receptionist at the advertising firm recalled Dariush leaving the building and walking with what appeared to be two men following him. He had left his car in the parking lot instead choosing to walk, which was a little unusual when he met with clients. Hmm. So that was the last time anybody had remembered seeing him alive. When Darius didn't arrive home that night to his wife or answer her texts, alarm bells started ringing. She was desperate by the next morning to find her husband and reported him missing to the police. His disappearance was uncharacteristic of him. While he would frequently meet with clients outside of work or after work, he would usually text his wife to let her know what his plans were for the evening. As police investigated, they found no solid leads, only a very strong suspicion that something fishy was going on. Darius's car was found in the office parking lot with no evidence that it had ever been used the previous evening, and none of his credit cards had been used since the day of his disappearance. Hmm. So that means he likely didn't make it back to the office at all. No. So he went on this little walk with these two guys following him. Were they like together following him or she's nodding her head? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You have to speak on a podcast? (laughs) I'm out of practice, Christy. (laughs) Let's just have a conversation like normal, okay? (laughs) Okay, the receptionist had seen him walking with two people that were walking behind him together. Okay, but they were in a group. Like, he obviously knew who they were and was walking freely with them. Or she just happened to notice two guys were walking closely behind him and he was unaware. Two guys were walking closely behind him. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like he was going for a walk with some clients and they were walking to a nearby restaurant or something. No, it sounds like she had assumed that he was walking to meet with a client and there just happened to be these two guys walking behind him. Okay. Because at the time, it wasn't suspicious to her at all. Gotcha. It was only after the fact that she was like, well, there were these two guys walking behind him. Okay. So police get that whole story from the receptionist and then they start combing through business records into Darius's personal life to find a clue as to where he had disappeared. They interviewed family, friends, and casual acquaintances. Police investigated all the usual motives, financial debt, grudges, and scorned lovers. What they found was that Dariush was a well-liked guy with no enemies. He was described as a gentle man with a flair for rock music. His financial affairs seemed to be in order, and even his wife checked out. They had been together for eight years, and while they had just gotten over a particularly rough patch in their marriage, they had recently just decided to reconcile their differences and were in the process of adopting a child. Huh. That was that seven-year itch that everyone talks about. <laughs> yep. And overall, Darius's wife didn't appear the vengeful type. She described her husband as the type that wouldn't harm anybody. Hmm. And things have got to be going pretty good if you're making plans to adopt a baby. Mm-hmm. When police notified her that they believed that they had found Darius's body, she was so distraught that she couldn't bring herself to come in and ID the body. Instead, the task fell to Darius's mother. And I can't imagine ever having to ID your own child. No, no parent should ever have to go through that. No. And for this mother, it was particularly more awful because after being tortured and spending an extended time in the cold Polish rivers, the identification wasn't an easy one. 
but his mother was able to confirm that the murdered man was in fact her son by identifying a unique birthmark on his chest. Oh. Police launched a full investigation, searching the depths of the river and the surrounding forests where Darius's body had been discovered, but nothing was found. With what little evidence they had to go on, police became speculative and drew on small amounts of things that they did know. Darius was a large man. It probably would have taken a couple people to subdue him. They knew he had been contacted at and taken from his place of employment, so the killer would have had to have at least some knowledge of his lifestyle and routine. It wasn't a random murder. And because of the treatment of the body, it seemed that whoever had orchestrated the murder was not particularly happy with him. He had been tortured and left almost naked. Police surmised that this was done with the intent to humiliate. Hmm. So was it the two guys that were walking behind him? I can't tell you. <laughs> we actually never know. You don't know who actually did the murder. What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, <Wait>. Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you about the guy that gets convicted for it. Um. <laughs> did you read the description on our podcast? <laughs> we talk about murderers <laughs> and their motives <laughs> you forgot look what oh, a break did guy. to you you forgot what our podcast is just wait <laughs> i'm gonna explain it all okay there is some question as to how this murder came about but all of this was just theories there wasn't any concrete evidence to really follow there were no fingerprints or no smoking gun the murderer had seemed to leave no trace at all behind the only lead that was a relatively promising one was that while looking into the phone record from Darius's office the morning of the disappearance, they found that the call that Darius's mother had taken had come from a payphone just down the street from the office, and that the same phone booth had been used to place a call just minutes later to Darius's cell phone. But with little else to go on, that lead wasn't enough to pursue any real suspect. They just knew where the call had come from. Mm-hmm. But it was a public phone. Mm-hmm. Within six months of the body being found, the case had gone cold. In an attempt to find further leads on the disappearance, the case was featured on Poland's version of Crime Watch in February 2002, a show called 997, the number of Poland's emergency services. Hmm. It's always interesting how that differs from countries. Because mm-hmm. in Canada, ours is 911. Yeah, but I think like in the UK, it's 999. So interesting. I heard for North America, the reason we have 911 is when we had the rotary phones, it was faster to do, like you would do the nine, but then like to have it ring all the way back, like circle all the way back and then to do another nine or another nine. Yeah. It was quicker to do the nine and then one one is fast. So why not just make it one one one? That would be the fastest. Yeah. Interesting. That's what I heard anyways. Somebody will have to fact check that for us. Yeah. I didn't fact check that. It was something in one of my research one time that they were talking about why it's different sometimes in different countries. That is so interesting, though. So after the show aired, though, tips started to come in from all over the globe, Japan, South Korea, and the U.S. Oh, wow. I wonder how many tips they get when they do a show like that. And how often do they come from outside of the country? Yeah, because like, how do you know when you're not even in the country? So random. But none of them actually proved overly helpful. The police let the investigation kind of sizzle out after that episode aired, hoping that the case that the Polish press were calling the perfect crime would go quietly into their past and that their failure to solve it would somehow be forgotten. Oh. Yeah. They just wanted to sweep it under the rug. Mm -hmm. The investigation was abandoned in May 2001. Huh. So actually not that long after. No. Like within six months, they had kind of wrapped it up. As police moved on to fresher cases... The Januszewski family hung a small cross on the oak tree where Darius's body had been found as a reminder that their son had received no justice and would not be forgotten by them. Three years later, Detective Warbaleski was given the task to review cold cases on the Warsaw Police Department, looking out for hints of organized crime. The oldest on the stack of cases in his office was the murder of Darius Januszewski. As he reviewed the case, he came across a small lead that had not been fully followed during the initial investigation. Fresh eyes sometimes bring fresh perspectives. Absolutely. And plus the technology had improved in the three years since the case had gone cold. Three years seems like a short amount of time, but in the world of tech, it actually can make a big difference. Oh, for sure. Darius's cell phone had never been recovered after his death. Records showed that it hadn't been used under his cell phone plan. But the detective was caught up on the fact that the murderer had contacted Darius that morning and arranged a visit where he planned to ambush him. Darius had taken the call on his cell phone, 
and that was the number that his mother had given the demanding client the morning of his disappearance. So the detective's idea was that each cellular phone is given a unique serial number and that cells calls can be traced through these serial numbers. Did you know that? That calls can be traced with the serial number? Yeah, not your cell phone plan, but the actual phone serial numbers. No, I didn't know that. I was like, so spy espionage kind of technology. I love it. <laughs> Big brothers watching. That is true. <laughs> Probably in more ways than we think. Yeah, really, right? <laughs> it helped out in this case, I guess. At the time that Warbaleski had started to reinvestigate the case, it was kind of a new technology available to the Rosad Police Department. Through interactions with Darius's wife, he was able to obtain the receipt for the phone and identify that unique serial number. With that in hand, Warbaleski was then able to confirm that the phone was still in use. <gasps> oh, so we have a dumb dirt bag. They're using his cell phone? It is being used. Oh, maybe they sold it? Yep. Oh, okay. I was like, you don't hang on to the phone. <laughs> through a series of interviews, though, this detective traced the phone's movements through various owners over the past three years since it had disappeared from the crime scene. The phone was sold to its first owner on September 16th, just three days after Darius had disappeared in an online auction site, Allegro. That is really eerie. Like, can you mm -hmm. imagine buying something off Facebook Marketplace and not knowing that the owner of that just three days before was murdered and now you're buying his phone? It gives eBay shopping a kind of new feel, doesn't it? It really does. The cell phone had been sold on Polish's version of eBay for 285 Polish lati or about 75 euros, which is about 110 Canadian. Okay. And honestly, what kind of murderer, like he's going through all this trouble to like torture and kill and bind and all this kind of stuff. And then he's like, oh, cell phone, I guess I'll sell this on eBay. Like, wouldn't you want to destroy anything that could possibly connect you to the murder? Well, and remember, this is three years after the murder. And it's a murder that the police have given up on. They can't find any leads. And the press is calling it the perfect crime because there is no leads. Yeah. Except there is. Except There's a cell phone with a serial number. <laughs> That's right. Digging deep into the online auction, the detective was able to identify the original seller. The username, Chris B7, had been used on the auction site, but the real man behind that character was a 30-year-old Polish intellectual and businessman, Christian Bala. The detective believed that it was possible that this man might be able to provide some pivotal information into the investigation. Perhaps he had found the phone and decided to sell it for money, or maybe it had been given to him by a friend to dispose of. Or maybe he killed Dariusz and sold the phone. Exactly. <laughs> the detective did think about that too, but he thought nobody is going to do that. It's too easy of a connection to make. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But with another person connected to the phone so close to the time of the murder, the police did feel that they were kind of closing in on the truth for this. That's yeah. where they're at. It's a smoking gun. Mm -hmm. Tracking the witness down, though, was a little bit more difficult than first anticipated. He was out of the country and had been for quite some time, according to his passport, since early 2001. Warbaleski looked into what little information he had available to him. On the internet, he found out that Christian was an avid writer and had recently published a novel and posted excerpts of it on his blog. Hmm. The excerpts were shocking. The book, titled A Mock, was sadistic, pornographic, and to the detective was a very interesting look into the next person in the witness trail. One particular excerpt contains the fictional tale of how a murderer sells his murder weapon on an online auction site to erase its connection to him. Hmm. And so the detective's like, what? That's exactly what I'm tracking down. Right. Something that was sold on a website mm -hmm. that's connected to a murder. That's right. For Detective Warbaleski, this was a little bit too much of a coincidence. And now he's like a dog with a bone. He's got a lead and he feels he can't put it down. And I find it always so interesting that there's often this kind of turning point in an investigation where it can go either way. It either goes really well if it's focused on the right trail, but if the wrong trail is picked up, then it can be a complete distraction and derail the whole investigation. How many cases have we talked about where the police become so focused on a particular notion that they completely miss evidence in other areas? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And this often does happen in cases of wrongful convictions. True. So Detective Warbaleski, he's got this lead that he is bound and determined to chase on this case. He purchases a copy of the novel to read the whole story. Yeah, I would too. 
So pulling out some very interesting investigation techniques, he gives other detectives homework assignments to comb through the work of fiction looking for clues. (laughs) They're probably like, what are you doing? (laughs) This is a novel. It's not even like a true crime book. But good for him. Like, that's actually really smart. Well, and he starts studying this novel as if it's like a research document. To the detective, hidden in the grotesque language and disturbing imagery of the novel are very glaring similarities between the crimes committed on the page and the one in real life. A mock tells the story of an intellectual named Chris who debates philosophy and becomes entangled in the murder of a woman who is tied up in the same fashion that Dariush was tied up in. The character Chris cleverly covers up his crime by selling the murder weapon and succeeds with getting away with murder. He uses even his own name? That's not the end of the similarities. And tied up the same way? Mm Mm-hmm. He deserves, well, they all deserve to get caught, but he really deserves to get caught. But we're going to have a discussion about him getting caught and whether his novel was just him trying to brag about his murder or whether he purposely wrote this novel to try and get away with murder. Hmm. Okay. I'm intrigued. As detectives dig quietly into the life of Christian Bala, he learns just how many traits the author shares with his main character. And they're digging quietly because they don't want to alert him. He's in another country and they need him to come back to Poland so that they can actually investigate him. Right. Christian Bala was born to Teresa and Stanisław Bala on January 1st, 1974 in Lower Silesian Vavoidship. He was the oldest of two children in a loving middle class family. His father officially worked as a construction worker and a taxi driver during Christian's childhood, but also did a wide range of odd jobs to earn extra money for his family in his parents' hometown of Chichoyna in southern Poland. Christian from a young age showed a flair for the dramatics and a love for academics. Books were his frequent companions, and his insights into philosophy and self-actualization stumped his father, who was a self-proclaimed simple man. Christian struggled to make friends because he was so egocentric. He often got into conflicts with other children. He always believed himself to be the best and the brightest and never wrong. Oh, we just love people like that, don't we? (laughs) They're so fun to get along with. Yeah. (laughs) From his youth, Christian believed that he could make himself more than what his humble beginnings allotted. His study of philosophy told him that truth was not something concrete, but was a subjective concept that could be bent to the will of the person that was telling it. To prove this and to amuse himself, he would purposely construct myths about himself and his adventures. He would tell very tall tales about romances with schoolmates or adventures in Paris when really he had just been like working on a farm in the French countryside. Hmm. All to convince his friends that he was more important and smarter than everybody else. He's just a liar. But he took it to the next level actually believing these lies. He would create these myths about himself and then start believing them. That's a committed liar. Mm Mm-hmm. A friend of Christian's would say that, quote, he would tell these tall stories about himself. If he told one person and that person then told someone else who then told someone else, it became true. It existed in the language. The friend claimed that, quote, Christian even had a term for it. He called it mythocreativity. Mytho creativity? Mm-hmm. Yep. So he was creating myths about himself and actually telling so many stories. People didn't even know which ones to believe or not. And like the game of broken telephone goes, he would just have one friend tell the next friend, tell the next friend, tell the next friend. And then he would forget which stories he had told. And so it all just became him. Huh. He would pick the best story and go with it. Mm -hmm. In his teens and early adulthood, Christian would boast of his drunken visits to brothels and his sexual escapades. He created legends among his friends and sorority girls that no woman would be able to resist him. He rebelled against conventions and told friends that he was capable of anything and that he, quote, would not live long, but would live furiously. So he sounds really insecure because usually people who are making up all these stories are actually pretty insecure with themselves, that they have to make themselves so much grander than they are. Someone who has genuine confidence doesn't have to go around telling everybody how great they are. Yeah. Just my opinion. Well, some people fell whole hook, line and sinker for his tales. And others just kind of played it off as Christian being Christian and that he was just this kind of eccentric academic. Who just craves external validation. Mm -hmm. A former professor said of him, in reality, he was, quote, kind, energetic, hardworking and principled. A friend would describe him by saying, quote, Christian liked the idea of being this Nietzschean Superman, 
But anyone who knew him well realized that with his language games, he was just playing around. And honestly, how do you get to know someone who's a pathological liar? Like, you don't really get to know who they are. It would be incredibly difficult. Yeah. And all of this seems that Christian's views of truth and philosophy got all mixed up and so convoluted that his friends and even he would have trouble distinguishing his real character from ones that he had invented. In an email to a friend, Christian wrote, quote, If I ever write an autobiography, it will be full of myths. <laughs> It'll be fiction. It won't be an autobiography. <laughs> But that just goes to show you, like, he recognized that he was creating these myths, but he was so deep into it that even he didn't understand what was myth and what was actual fact anymore. And he had this philosophical view of truth being the subjective, like, it only depends on what I believe, and that's true. Hmm. Yeah, he has some out there thinking, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. The real fact about Christian, the one not disputed, was that he was a very smart person. He had been the equivalent of the high school valedictorian and was the first person in his family to go to university. As an undergraduate at the University of Warsaw, between 1992 and 1997, he was considered one of the brightest philosophy students to ever attend. Hmm. While other students had to study and work their butts off, he could be out partying all night and still ace all the tests. One of Christian's philosophy professors said that he had this ferocious appetite for learning and had a, quote, inquisitive but rebellious mind. He was drawn to radicalist views and believed strongly that, quote, there are no facts, only interpretations, and that, quote, truths are only illusions which we have forgotten are illusions. Hmm. So totally a philosopher. Mm-hmm. There's a fine line between manifesting and then just being totally delusional. And it's a delicate balance for him. Yeah. It's a thin line between delusion and... And just putting it out there in the universe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I believe in positive thinking, but this is the next step. Same. I believe in manifestation, that type of thing. But then it comes out to just bold-faced lies. It's so true. Christian would act according to his myths, though. He would act in outrageous ways or create stories about acting outrageously just to prove his beliefs. His attendance at university gave him a stage to display his confidence and develop different mythical versions of himself. But despite all this talk of him being like this forerunner in philosophy and sticking it to anything conventional or normal, Christian actually married his high school sweetheart, Stanislava, also known as Stasia, in 1995 at the age of 21. I found that really contradictory of his personality. The whole time he's at school and he's really pushing like I can just create who I want to be and he didn't want to follow any traditions or anything like that. He actually does this hugely traditional move and marries his high school sweetheart. Oh, totally. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this marriage was much to the chagrin of his mother. Stasia, unlike her decorated academic husband, was a high school dropout that cared very little about philosophy. Christian's mother would have preferred her son to be left to continue his education without the added responsibilities of family. But that's not how Christian saw it. He ignored his mother's advice and married Stasia anyway. And in 1997, the same year Christian graduated from university with the highest possible marks, the couple had their first child, a little boy they called Casper. Aww. Christian went on to enroll in a PhD program in philosophy, but even with a full scholarship, he struggled to support his new family and had to drop out of his beloved studies. So his mother was right. He used his talents instead to open up a cleaning business using new tech and industrial machines. And he made enough of a hype in the business world with his bigger-than-life myth creations that he was featured in a documentary called Young Money about up-and-coming businessmen in Poland in 1999. Really? He was an influencer before influencers were a thing. <laughs> See, and it's such a waste when people have potential like this and they use that potential to become a murderer. It's so true. We see this happen with many people where they could have done good things. Mm -hmm. But at this point in Christian's life, he's starting to get a little bit disillusioned about who he is. Because in this documentary, he appears disgruntled with how his life is turning out. He tells the camera crew, once I planned to paint graffiti on the walls and now I'm trying to wash it off. Hmm. So there's like these little things that start happening in his life at this time that start to point to he's not exactly happy with where his life is going. No matter how good of a story he creates, it's not the life he wanted to live. Well, and when you're coming up with these grandiose stories, real life is not going to compare to that. No. How do you ever live up to fictional characters? Right. And that's what he's creating for himself. Yeah. You still got to work. You still got to pay your bills. You still mm -hmm. need money to buy groceries. It's not just going to fall from the sky for you. So true. 
His lack of enthusiasm for his job might have played a big part into its failure. Along with Christian's extravagant spending styles to keep up appearances and build the man, the myth, the legend that he pretty much believed despite all of his failures, his business failed miserably. By 2000, Christian filed for bankruptcy and his marriage soon followed the same path as his business, aided by several extramarital affairs on Christian's part. Aww. As Christian created a myth around his personality with his numerous affairs with other women, his relationship with his wife became increasingly controlling. He believed her only purpose was to stay home and raise their child. His controlling nature and narcissism all aided in the disillusion of his marriage. Hmm. During this rocky part of his life, between 1999 and 2000, with his business and marriage collapsing, Christian became increasingly difficult to be around. A friend recalled that he once, quote, started to behave vulgarly and wanted to take his clothes off just to show his manliness. What? He just sounds like such a gross guy, honestly. He's just such an odd person. The family babysitter described him as increasingly drunk and out of control. She said that he constantly berated Stasia, shouting at her that she slept around and cheated on him all the time. In the latter half of the year 2000, Christian became despondent with friends and took his breakup with his wife very hard. He did not like the idea of not being able to control her anymore. In early 2001, he decided to leave Poland altogether and visit the U.S. and parts of Asia where he made a living writing travel magazines and teaching English and scuba diving. During his travels is when he started his novel and began to tell his tale of murder, completing it in 2002. Wow. So when he was out of the country, he was out writing his novel? Mm-hmm. That's wild. This was the novel that the detective had found. It didn't amount to much at all. It was so disturbing that book reviewers rated it 1.5 stars. Anna would not recommend. Really? Mm-hmm. Even his father had a hard time reading it and politely said that it was just ahead of its time. Yeah, that's what a dad says to make his son feel better about himself. <laughs> so was it because it was so poorly written or because of the content? The content. Okay. He had used such vulgar language mm. and it was almost pornographic in nature. Uh. He explained a lot of his philosophies in it about truth and there were really some anti-religious movements or anti-Christian themes in it. That it wasn't accepted by the general public very much at all. It's not a book you're going to feel good after reading. No, not at all. And he had friends telling him, like, this does not portray a good portrait of you. Like, no. this is not a good book. Go home, Christian, and take your book with you. <laughs> yeah. For Detective Warbaleski, though, this novel was the key to solving his crime. Well, it's totally a look into the mind of a killer, really. Mm -hmm. He just couldn't get over the fact that the novel held so many similarities between Chris, the fictional character, and Christian in real life. In real life, Christian would often use the name Chris as a nickname, or as screen names and passwords. Christian in real life was very similar to his main character. Both were consumed by philosophy. Both had been abandoned by their wives. Both had a company that went bankrupt. They both traveled around the world. And they both drank too much. Hmm. So maybe it is an autobiography. <laughs> and like we discussed before, some elements of the fictional crime were so eerily familiar to the real life crime that detectives were investigating that Warbaleski just could not let it go. Oh, you can't ignore that. Mm -mm. So he waited for Christian to return from his travels. So as he waited, he tried to find more concrete connections between Christian and Dariush. Warbaleski went back to the phone, the online auction, and the screen name Chris B7. Under that same account, Christian had shown interest in another auction item, a police manual entitled Accidental, Suicidal, and Criminal Hanging. A manual describing in detail... How hanging a mature, conscious, healthy, and physically fit person was very difficult, even for several people, and described various ways that a noose might be tied to overcome this. Like the one that was tied on Darius. Mm -hmm. Even though this is all very interesting, it wasn't really a true connection. Just because Christian had shown an interest in the item didn't mean that he had even actually purchased it. True. Or ever read it. But because the book site was accessed by Christian on October 17th, Almost a full month before Darius's disappearance, if there was a connection, it would mean that the murder was premeditated. I don't think you capture someone and torture them and that's not premeditated. Yeah. <laughs> Mind you, I guess maybe sometimes it's not, but usually I would say that it is. Mm -hmm. Police continue to build a case against Christian while he remains abroad. They do their investigation from a distance because they don't want to scare him off returning to Poland, where they would be able to bring him in for questioning. 
The opportunity for that presented itself September 5th, 2005. There are two different stories about what happened next in the investigation and questioning. Christian's story and the police's story. I'm going to believe the police because Christian's a little liar. (laughs) He's got the Pinocchio nose. See, I'm always on the fence of like, "Mm, it might be kind of both. In this case, it's not both. Well, you got to hear them and then tell me it's not both. I already know it's not both. <laughs> Christian's a liar. He's a pathological liar. He is a pathological liar. So we're not believing his story. We're not <laughs> having like, it. <laughs> but you can still tell us. Okay. <laughs> it's just so interesting that I have to tell you his side of the story. Oh, for sure. And I think it will play into and help you understand why I think that maybe he wrote his novel to actually get out of the murder charge. Okay, I'll hear it out. (laughs) So according to Christian, he was taken into custody around 2.30 p.m. when he was leaving a drugstore. He was attacked by three or four individuals that did not identify themselves. He was forced into a dark green car and had a plastic bag put over his head and was taken to a remote location. During the car ride, he could hear his assailants telling their boss that they had him and asking about their own personal payment. Christian said he assumed that these men knew that he lived abroad and was a published writer. He believed that they assumed he was rich and planned to rob him or hold him for ransom. At the remote location, the car stopped, and he overheard his captives again talking, this time about digging a hole and burying him in it. Then, all of a sudden, the car took off again, only a short while later, to stop again. This time, he was forced from the car into a building where he was told to cooperate or else. They stripped him naked, beat him, and started to interrogate him. He said that it was only after all of this did he realize that it was the Polish police at the Rotsa department that were his captors. Oh, okay. According to Christian's versions of events, during the questioning, he absolutely denied any involvement with Dariush. He said that he was dumbfounded by the questions and adamantly told police that he did not know Dariush Januszewski and that he knew nothing about the murder. When asked about his connection to the cell phone, he told them that he had purchased it at a pawn shop and he had actually been known to do that in the past. Christian later told reporters that when the police brought up his novel Amok, it was like they knew the complete book off by heart and that they were obsessed with it and could not understand that it was only a work of fiction. He told reporters that police were crazy to think any sane individual would write and publish and promote a novel where they confessed to murder. That the police were so focused on the book that they couldn't investigate properly and that they were forcing evidence to fit the story. Well, that does happen sometimes in cases. Mm-hmm. When confronted with the evidence of personal events in the book that very closely resembled his life, Christian merely stated that all authors use elements of their own life in their stories. Yeah, like when you murder someone and write about it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But Christian's defense or his argument is that they're actually not that closely related. It's just that the police are tunnel visioned and making the pieces fit. Okay. The police's story, according to several police officers, is that Christian was apprehended at the drugstore near his parents' home around 2.30 p.m. in Lignesta Street in Choynoff. The whole incident was without violence. He was then driven to the police station and interrogated following routine procedures. About Christian's claim of abuse, officers scoffed and said that they had even gone as far as taking his handcuffs off to make him more comfortable during the interrogation. They denied using force on their suspect. They had done everything by the book. In the police's version of events, Christian was asked point blank during the investigation who he had helped murder Dariush. He was miffed that they would believe that he would need help and claim that he had murdered him all on his own. That he didn't have any help because he didn't need it. See, I told you he's insecure. He has a fragile ego. That would definitely point to it. When the police are asking you, who did you help murder someone? You don't be like, I don't need help. I can murder them all on my own. You say, no one, sir. I didn't help murder anybody. Well, according to the police, after this, what they felt was a little bit of a slip of a tongue of Christians, he became distraught and demanded a doctor be called because he wasn't feeling well and he was terribly sick. After being checked out and proclaimed perfectly healthy, the interrogation was allowed to continue. But now, Christian smiled smugly and refused to answer any more questions. 
and he refused to sign the previous statement that he had made. So no part of what he had previously told the police could be entered as a confession. Oh, they weren't recording it or because he didn't sign it, they couldn't use it? He didn't sign it. it. Yeah, he wouldn't say that he had said those things because they were like handwriting it. And he's like, nope, I'm not saying that I said that. Mm, and it wasn't being recorded. Nope. Oh, that sucks. Uh-huh. The detectives felt that Christian's arrogance was why he taunted them about the confession, because he understood that without that confession, they didn't really have a case. And it was a way for him to feel in control of the whole situation. Remember, this is the case that the media is calling the perfect crime. Mm-hmm. And this is now like five years after the fact. And they don't have any solid evidence. No, none. So they felt that he had purposely done this. Oh, yeah. Dangled the little carrot in front of them and then whipped it away. Mm -hmm. What a dirtbag. And I'm not sure which version I believe, whether he kind of made a slip up and was like, no, I don't need any help. Because I think from his character, he might actually be that arrogant. Or if he was that smart to actually taunt the police with it and give them what they wanted and what they needed. And then just to take it away from them. I think the first. Let's not give him more credit than he deserves. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then I do believe that it's probably some conglomeration of the police's side of the story and Christian's side of the story that is actually the truth. Yeah, they always say there's two sides and then the actual truth, right? I just don't see why the police would lie about his confession. Right. I just always think it's a little bit of both. Because while I do think that the police's story is true about the recanted confession, I'm not buying 100% their completely by the book version of events. Oh, you think they were a little rough in the interrogation? I bet you they were. Hmm. They had waited almost five years to capture this guy. But if you've waited five years, you're going to be really careful. Yeah, maybe. You're not going to want to botch this one up. True. So maybe I just watched too many spy movies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm defending the police in this one. (laughs) But I definitely don't believe it was as dramatic as Christian makes it out to be. He was an author after all. And a liar. Mm Mm-hmm. He's a liar. (laughs) When you cry wolf too many times, you're going to get eaten because no one's going to believe you. It's so true. And you think it was totally made up. Or was he just being this really smart guy who had lots of time to plan? And maybe this was just one of the ways he was preparing a defense. Because police brutality and coerced confessions are all things that would make a conviction really hard after the fact. It's true. So if they ever found any evidence, then he could be like, oh, but look, you can't use this in court. Yeah, and he's pretty conniving, so it's hard to say. I just think that you see with all of his myth creations about himself that he does play the long game. It's true. But we also know he has a huge ego. And for them to even suggest that he would not be able to overpower this man on his own would have been so insulting. Mm -hmm. That would have been a huge ego blow to him. Yeah. Officially on record, there is a paper trail for the ambulance call and subsequent medical check that deemed Christian fit to continue with questioning. But there is no signed confession or statement ever made to the police. Okay, so just proof that he wasn't feeling good. That's right. There is, however, the results of a polygraph test that Christian agreed to take. Of course he would take it because he believes that anything he says can be true. That's his whole philosophy. Yeah, so he's probably going to pass it with flying colors because his mind actually believes whatever he creates is true. Mm -hmm. So he agrees to take this polygraph test. And what he's asked during this test are, just before Darius Janoszewski lost his life, did you know this would happen? Were you the one who killed him? Do you know who actually murdered him? Did you know Janoszewski? Were you in the place where Janoszewski was held hostage? Christian answered no to all of these questions. And passed? The results of the test were reported as inconclusive. Okay. But the examiner noted that as Christian replied to each question, he would slow his breathing similar to how a scuba diver would do. Hmm. The examiner made note that this kind of breathing technique could be used to manipulate the test and that could have contributed to the inconclusive results. And he was a scuba diving trainer, so he knew how to manipulate his breathing techniques. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I forgot about that. (laughs) I'm just so focused on all the other stuff. (laughs) With no confession, though... And only an unreliable polygraph test, police after 48 hours were forced to let Christian go. In Poland, the law is that after 48 hours, the prosecutor of the case is required to present his evidence before a judge and charge the suspect. Otherwise, the police have to let him go. The only thing that the police had gained through this interaction was an appreciation that Christian was a smart, albeit arrogant man. 
They were able to charge him with some minor offenses for selling Darius's stolen phone and another unrelated bribe charge that they had uncovered during the investigation. These charges weren't sufficient enough to put him in jail, but they did ensure that he could not flee Poland while they investigated more. So at least they kept him in the country. Mm -hmm. Are you ready for more storytelling? Yes. Okay. After his release, Christian became a small town celebrity. He presented his story to the media about his mistreatment and how the Polish police had abused him and sought his life, all because they couldn't tell a good story from real life. His girlfriend at the time hired a high-powered attorney, and a campaign was launched on Christian's behalf. No way! Mm -hmm. The campaign called The Absurd Matter contacted human rights organizations and made pleas on the international stage. Polish justice minister received letters on Christian's behalf from around the world. What? One said, quote, Mr. Bala deserves his rights in accordance with Article 19 of the UN Declaration of Human Rights that guarantees the right to freedom of expression. We urge you to ensure that there is an immediate and thorough investigation into his kidnapping and imprisonment and that all those found responsible are brought to justice. Whoa. Like most people would go and lay low. They would not want attention brought on themselves after being questioned about murder. No, he creates this whole media circus around how these crazy police are so tunnel visioned on his novel that they are accusing him of murder. And not only are they accusing him, but they have tried to take his life. So he's totally painting or creating this narrative. Mm -hmm. And going to global organizations saying, look, I was just trying to write a novel. I should be allowed to express myself freely. So you're infringing on my human rights. Mm -hmm. Christian took his plight to the streets and wrote letters that were published in newspapers about how the police continued to spy on him and that the police were ruining his life and that of his family, citing several ailments of his parents that he attributed to the stress of the investigation. In the paper, he wrote, quote, We will never use internet freely again. We will never make any phone calls, not thinking about who is listening. My mother takes some pills to stay calm. Otherwise, she would get insane because of this absurd accusation. My old father smokes 50 cigarettes a day and I smoke three packs. We all sleep three to four hours daily and we are afraid of leaving a house. Every single bark of our little dog alerts us and we don't know what or who to expect. It's terror. Quiet terror. What? What a storyteller. I'm not buying it. He's posting these things in the newspapers. And I feel like the audacity. How dare you talk about how frightened you are every time your little chihuahua barks. When the terror you put this man through the whole last few days of his life, right up until his last breath, you don't know what terror is, sir. And he did all of this to get in the way of the investigation. Oh, yeah, totally. And manipulating the public. Mm -hmm. And create sympathies towards him and keep the limelight on him instead of the victim. Oh, he's horrible. He is. A months-long investigation was launched into Christian's arrest in early 2006. At the end of the investigation, there was no collaborating evidence found for Christian's claims. Police said that the whole thing had been one of his mytho creations. For sure it was. So all the time that this is going on, Christian's enjoying his 15 minutes of fame and generating more interest in his novel than it had ever had. Police continued to dig for other evidence that would link him to Darius's murder, while Christian played it up in the media and his book became a bestseller. <laughs> of course it would. Because wouldn't you be so intrigued as to what was in this book that police are thinking this man's a murderer? Mm-hmm. I would want to read it. Yeah. That's wild. And so his book starts flying off shelves. Yeah. So he's getting free publicity. So now he's profiting off of his crime. Yep. And investigation. And building a case against the police saying that they have become so obsessed over the novel that that's why they're focusing on him. And I've written such an amazing book that the police are obsessing over it. Yes. At 1.5 stars. But now it's a bestseller. It is. All because of the attention over this murder. Because he's having a temper tantrum. Mm -hmm. So the police are kind of watching this all go on, but they're trying to do their work in the background. With Christian no longer able to flee the country, police are able to openly start questioning Christian's family and friends. And they get more of a view into who Christian actually is. Most who they talk to are fans of Christians. He is a bright and interesting man, intelligent, inquisitive, 
And most say he's easy to get along with, with a keen sense of humor. He had even received a reference from a former employer that said he would, quote, without no reservation, recommend Christian Bala for any teaching position with children. No way. Mm-hmm. To others, Christian was self-absorbed and a complete show-off. An authoritarian type who couldn't be trusted to tell an honest story. Curiously, the one person that was very reluctant to talk to the police was the one person who could possibly have had the most insight into Christian's character. His ex-wife and the mother of his child, Stacia. She wanted nothing to do with her ex-husband or the police that were investigating him. While failing to get Stasia to share her insights, police do find some circumstantial evidence in the passport that they had confiscated from Christian. When the case had aired on the show 997, the police had received tips about the investigation that had always seemed a little peculiar because they had been received from outside the country. As detectives compared the passport stamps to the tips made from outside the country, they lined up. Christian had been in Japan, South Korea, and the U.S. during each time period that a tip was called in from that country. No way! Mm -hmm. To throw off the investigation. Yep. And there are a couple reports that one of the tips received was to read the novel. But I couldn't confirm it. But I thought, that would be so cheeky. He is such a conniving dirtbag. Mm -hmm. And if he's trying to build this case where he's planning to get away with murder by throttling the investigation and making it seem like the police are just out to get him and the police are going to be so tunnel vision that they're going to cause this wrongful conviction and he's planting the seeds. Hey, why don't you read this novel? What a bugger, honestly. But what good police work for even for them to make that connection of these tips came in from Japan and he was there at the time. Mm -hmm. And oh, look, he was in Canada when this tip came in. Yep. Police also learned from their telecommunications expert that a calling card had been used from the payphone to call Darius's office and cell the morning of his disappearance. This same calling card signature was examined and over a three month period had made 32 calls in total. In addition to the calls made to Darish, there were calls to Christian's parents, his girlfriend, his friends, and his associates. But police had already talked to all those people, so beyond establishing that it was definitely Christian using the phone calling card, it didn't provide the police with anywhere new to look. And what excuse did he use for having spoken with Darius? Because the media attention is going on so strongly with all of these human rights activists, the police aren't actively questioning him during this time. They're just gathering information because they're trying to lay low during the time that their investigation is being investigated. Right. So they never ask him about that. Detective Warbleski again returns to Christian's novel for inspiration of where to go next. To make a connection between the author and the victim, he starts looking for a motive. In the book, he finds that the motive for the character Chris to kill his victim was jealousy. So Warbleski starts working that angle. Stacia is still not being overly open with the police, so they start questioning her friends. Several of them have taken note of Christian's jealous behavior in the past. On New Year's Eve in 2000, it was reported by several people that Christian had become really intoxicated and caused quite a scene at a friend's party and took a swing at a bartender accusing him of trying to chat up his wife. Oh my goodness. Remember, at this time, they were actually in the middle of a divorce, and he's still using a possessive term over her. See, fragile ego. Mm -hmm. One witness overhears him telling the same bartender, quote, I've already dealt with such a guy. This would have been just a couple weeks after Darius's body had been found. One of Stasia's friends tells police that in the summer of 2000, she and Stasia had gone to a nightclub called The Crazy Horse in Warsaw. While there, Stasia had struck up a conversation with a tall, dark, handsome stranger with blue eyes at the bar. It was Darius Januszewski. Police go back to Stasia to confront her about the meeting with Darius and show her excerpts from Christian's novel that he published after they had broken up. According to Polish authorities, Stasia was disturbed by the character of Chris's wife, Sonia. The character's similarities to her were so eerie that she agrees to talk to the police. Huh, finally. She tells them about the night at the club with her friend. That night, she did meet Darius. They had first discussed the quality of french fries at the club, and then they found themselves talking late into the night with each other. They agreed to go out again, and Darius gave Stasia his number. At the end of their next date, the two checked into a hotel. But before the two had become intimate, Darius admitted to still being married, and Stasia left. 
This was during the rocky period in Darius's marriage, and he was seeking companionship. Stasia didn't really care what excuse he had. Christian had made her the betrayed wife sitting at home, and she didn't want to do that to another person. So she just got up and left. So she was already separated, but mm-hmm. he wasn't. That's right. Okay. He was having just a rough go in his marriage. Okay. This was the last time that the two of them ever saw each other. While nothing had become of their relationship, Christian somehow learned about that night in the hotel and confronted Stacia about it several weeks later. Christian, in a drunken state, demanded that she admit to having an affair with Dariush and said that he knew everything about the hotel. Christian claimed to have hired a private detective and admitted to visiting Dariush's office to Stasia. Hmm. Stasia admits that when Dariush had first disappeared that she had become suspicious that Christian might be involved. She even confronted him about it, but he denied it, and she believed him. I wouldn't have believed him, that he had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think, no matter what kind of a dirtbag ex-husband you have, if you've loved somebody in the past, it would be a hard sell to believe that they could have committed murder. That's a pretty big coincidence. Like, you were just talking to this man, and all of a sudden this man gets murdered, and your husband writes a book about it? Well, this is before the book is ever published. This is before he left Poland. Right. I would have questions. I don't know that I would immediately jump to that conclusion, but I would definitely, deep down, probably be a little worried. Well, this is the excuse that she gives of why she's never talked to the police, is that she asked him and she believed him that he didn't have anything to do with it. And then he left the country. For the detective that had been chasing the trail for so long, this was the missing link. This explained the motive. Christian is arrested for the murder of Dariush almost five years after committing the crime. His trial began on February 22, 2007, with two judges and three citizens to decide his fate. Hmm. Christian throughout his trial maintained his innocence, and the defense presented the case that Christian could not be put on trial for a crime in a fictional novel, claiming that he derived the details for his book from media reports about the murder, even though some of the details in his book were never released to the media. Mm-hmm. However, because of all the media attention and all the hype that Christian has created and all the mytho creations about his involvement with the police and their abuse of him, the judge rules in his favor, saying that no connections in the book can be allowed as evidence. What? Mm -hmm. Christian, who is also allowed to question witnesses and experts, does so with zeal, trying to prove his innocence on arguments of philosophy. He had to be reminded several times that it was a court and not a lecture hall. Oh, he's infuriating. So he's defending himself in court. Mm, Pretty much. He does have a defense attorney. But in Poland, the accused is allowed to ask their own questions. Okay. While he never actually testifies on his own behalf, through his questioning, he makes several arguments that he was too smart of a man to have committed a murder and then write about it in a book. So that's his whole defense, is that I am so smart that I would never do this. Okay. Except you did. Yeah. (laughs) The prosecution outlined their volumes of circumstantial evidence. Remember, that's all they have. They don't have any direct evidence. And showed the court files found on Christian's computer where he had kept information about Stacia's new boyfriend. Hmm. So stalking behavior. Mm-hmm. A psychological assessment confirmed Christian had statistic tendencies and had a need to demonstrate his superiority. Christian regarded himself as someone much smarter and stronger than others. It was said he displayed a narcissistic mindset and sociopathic tendencies. Witnesses testified that he was a control freak, a pathological liar, and was pathologically jealous of his wife. He couldn't let anyone else have her. On September 5, 2007, Christian Bala was found guilty at the age of 34. While Judge Lydia Hojenska admitted that Christian could not be found directly guilty of carrying out the murder, there was significant circumstantial evidence to lead the court to conclude that Mr. Bella had been driven to kill Darius Januszewski and was responsible for his death. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison. So while the judge wasn't 100% sure that he had actually committed the crime himself, she did deem him responsible okay. for carrying it out. Of the sentence, Darius's father said, quote, Justice was served, but the verdict will never be adequate to the crime. It's tough to talk about being happy with it because nothing will bring my son back. The whole time he made this statement, he was holding a photo of his son in court. Christian appealed the decision and was granted a new trial in 2008. What? The appeal was based on Christian being mistreated by the police. 
and that they had become obsessive over his book. Because it's evidence. (laughs) (laughs) But it was never even allowed in the first one. That's true. The same conclusion and sentence were reached. So he had a second trial and was found guilty on the same charge. Mm -hmm. Okay. Since being incarcerated, Christian passes the time by reading his novel aloud to other cellmates and is working on another novel, which is supposedly going to be called Delirik, which he promises will be a book like no other. Oh, I can imagine. (laughs) To this day, he maintains his innocence and has revealed nothing about how he was able to overpower or subdue Darius Januszewski. And that is the case of the despicable, self-involved, jealous dirtbag author who was so full of himself that he tried to balance the thin line between arrogance and stupidity and ended up getting caught. Christian Valla. Wow. That was a wild ride. There are so many times researching this case that I was like, are you serious? Yeah. But so many people bought into his myths that he had created for himself. I was just going to say, Christian, we're not buying what you're selling. (laughs) And then even the fact that at the end, he gathers the other prisoners for story time to read them his book. Mm -hmm. Like that just talks about how egocentric he is and is still getting probably enjoyment, seeing their reactions as he's reading them things that he actually did to a human being. Yeah. My only big question at the end of this case was, was he smart enough to try and put all of this in place before to try and get off like did he write the book to get out of the murder charge to use it as a defense or was he just that egocentric maniac that thought that he could write about his crimes and not get caught oh yeah i think he's like oh yeah i'm gonna write about this and make lots of money and it's gonna be great i am curious though was christian a big guy like could he have physically overpowered darius i wouldn't have assumed so from his size he didn't look overly big So it would have been extra challenging if he had done it on his own. Yeah. Which, if you believe the police's story, he did claim he did. Mm -hmm. And was there a toxicology report or would that have even shown up that long afterwards? I did. If he had drugged him to overpower him? I didn't read any toxicology report. Okay. But it did sound like he had kept him hostage for at least three days. And so anything in his system might have left his system if he had drugged him. That's true. Interestingly, though... This case did inspire a movie with Jim Carrey in it called Dark Crimes. Really? Mm-hmm. It was as big of a flop as Christian's book originally. <laughs> and that's why we haven't heard of the movie. <laughs> that's right. The movie cost like $3.8 million to make and it only made $21,000. <gasps> that's a big flop. Yeah, it was a huge flop. Wow, that is an interesting fact. I just found it so ironic because he was all about telling his story and he was actually pretty excited that his story was going to get made into a movie and it was a big flop, (laughs) just like his book was. Yeah, well-deserved. You should not be put on a pedestal and celebrated for taking another person's life. But that is absolutely what he tried to do. Yep, and I'm glad he did not get away with it. Well, Melissa, that was a great case to ring in our new year. And it's been so fun chatting again after our little break it really has and i'm really excited to share my case with you guys next week it's a big one (laughs) christy has been working so hard over the break but until then we hope you guys have a wonderful week see ya bye Another test, another dollar, another day. Now, what has it got? Another day, another dollar? But we got no dollars. That's true. <laughs> Hardly any days. On autopsy. Don't be so breathy. Woo. You're right. She's, she's still feisty. a breathy girl. <laughs> Darius Janiszewski. Jan, uh, hold on, I can do it. Janiszewski. Janiszewski. It starts with a J, you know. <laughs> you picked a Polish case. It's always amazing how easy cases are to solve in hindsight. Right? (laughs) When we have all the information right in front of us. And the clues are laid out just like this. Bald face lies. Mm -hmm. Christian would often act... Is it bald or bold? Bold. (laughs) Good catch, Christy. Because I was like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yep. They'd even gone as far as taking his hand cough. His hands off? (laughs) That is torture.
torture us. Oh, we man. didn't abuse him. We just took his hands off. <laughs> what okay. do we do in Poland? <laughs> I don't know. And that's what makes me think maybe it's a little bit true. <laughs> no. Who he had helped marry Darius. Marry w- Darius? Murder. <laughs> Good catch, Christy. I am paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to brain it back in. Christy. <laughs> He's so giddy today. We're just so happy to be back. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.